Having completed a detailed exposition of the first book of the prophet Samuel, we now begin our exposition on the second book of the prophet, where David is told of Saul's final humiliation. This is the first sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 1. 2 Samuel and chapter 1, the first 16 verses, verses 1 through 16. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag, it came to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, that the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan his son be dead? And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me. For anguish is come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head, and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I brought them hither unto my Lord. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them. And likewise all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. And David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. And David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. Matthew writing to us in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 37 through verse 39, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking as the prophet writes by inspiration. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens, and under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now at this point in the historical narrative, according to the prophet Samuel, narcissistic, idolatrous, tyrannical, murderous Saul has been slain along with Jonathan 
and two other of Saul's sons. But David had not yet heard news. He had been preoccupied with his own battle against the Amalekites. And unlike David, who sought only for the glory of God, instead of seeking to glorify God, Saul, on the other hand, sought to glorify himself by eradicating David by a wicked assassination attempt and the promise of David's ascension to the throne so that Saul's dynasty, his own dynasty, Saul's generational continuity might be realized in opposition to God through David. Now, while the Lord was against Saul, he was mighty with David, affording David a victory against his enemies and a defeat upon Saul against his enemies. So now upon the completion of David's victory against the Amalekites, David retreats with his army to Ziklag. We see this in verse 1. And so after the battle, David returns to Ziklag for two days. And then upon the third day, upon that third day, the news finally arrives that Saul and Jonathan were killed in the battle against the Philistines. And we see this in verses 2 and following. And this was very disturbing news to David indeed. Upon hearing this, righteous David, passionate David, honorable David, asks for assurance, perhaps at this time even refused to believe that, that Saul, the king of Israel, and Jonathan, his beloved, was killed in battle. So he asks for assurance that this was not simply a rumor, but that it was actually true that Saul and Jonathan were in fact dead. Note the testimony of this man. David is concerned. How? How did this man know this? What were the events behind this man's knowledge? Notice the testimony of the man in verse 6 and 7. And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me and answered, Here am I. Saul was, according to this man's testimony, was calling upon him and asking who he was. And the man answered that he was an Amalekite. And then in verse 8, he says again to the man, Stand, I pray thee, upon me and slay me. Saul is saying, slay me, for anguish has come upon me because my life is yet whole in me. And the Amalekite is saying, well, then I just listened to the king of Israel. I I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure. He was absolutely sure. He's telling David that he could not live after that. He was fallen and it took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and brought them to David. Now, when we saw Saul last alive in chapter 31 for Samuel, he was in fact mortally wounded. He was in fact mortally wounded to the point where he was afraid that if the Philistines found him alive, they would torture him and humiliate him to the point of a great humiliation. And of course, a narcissistic man doesn't want to be humiliated. And he was deadly afraid of that possibility because he saw it as a likelihood and he was probably right that the Philistines would humiliate him, tear him apart, make use of him in a very ungodly fashion and so in a desperate attempt to deliver himself from the brutality of his enemies, he commands his armor bearer, not this Amalekite, mind you, to kill him. Now fearful of such commandments, Saul's armor bearer, of course, refuses and Saul, of course, falls himself upon his own sword, killing himself. So Saul dies by his own hand. He commits suicide, resulting in the armor-bearer's horror, which resulted in 
taking his own life as well. And we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 31, 5. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his own sword and died with him. Now the question that David might ask, and must ask at this point, is this man actually telling the truth? That Saul was still alive when he found him and obeyed his command to kill him since the wound given by his armor bearer was insufficient to kill Saul or the wound given by the Philistines was insufficient to kill Saul? Was this actually the real story? Was this actually true? Or was this Amalekite lying? And why would he be lying? Now to be sure, as we shall see, that the story that the Amalekite man gives David was, was quite suspicious, if not a downright lie. Now consider the particulars of the situation. Firstly, after hearing of Saul's death, David does what righteous, passionate, devoted David must do. He weeps. Not only does he weep, but all of his men, those very same men that Saul was persecuting, those very same men that Saul was persecuting were weeping as well. And David took hold upon his clothes and rent them. He tore them in a fit of, of sorrow and, and, and rage. And he rent them and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept. And this response of such great sorrow, understanding the situation is incredible because as you remember, it was not so long ago when Saul was trying to kill everyone. David and his army. And he would not have given David even any mercy whatsoever if given the chance. If it wasn't for the Lord's intervention time and time again. And David's passion for the Lord's anointed time and time again. David would have been destroyed. Saul would have destroyed him. And everyone knew this. And yet, amazing, they weep for Saul. Note what they don't do. And I'm always amazed as to what men don't do in situations like this. One would think that Saul is dead. Praise God. And yet, there's no celebration. There's no celebration for the death of their enemy. Because he was in fact one of their own brethren, their kinsmen. He was in fact God's anointed king. So they do not rejoice over God's destruction of Saul, which actually put an end to their exile. It was a wonderful and horrible thing all at the same time, and they weep for him. And this was a godly response. For even God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And in this case, these wicked men, not Jonathan, but Saul and much of his army, who had persecuted David and his army, even though they might be wicked men, they were still Israelites. They were still kinsmen of Israel. Consider what God says to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, he says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Notice, he's asking Israel, identifying Israel as a fallen away people. He says, I do not have any pleasure in your death. Note, God's commandment is for those who are called by His name to repent. He does not want those who are called by His name to be destroyed by His wrath. Now, even though God would wholly be justified by destroying those that profess His name 
and yet are unrepentant, he'd rather that those who are called by his name turn to him and be reconciled to him. Those who have an open profession of being, in this case, in the Old Testament, Israel, or in the New Testament, Christians. And we see this response by the Lord Jesus Christ when he, looking at his own kinsmen, looking at his own brethren, even perhaps all those of the hypocrisy. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together. He weeps over the apostasy of his people. But this response of weeping is only reserved for those that profess to be God's people and yet, of course, refuse to be humbled by his law. This is not the response that we are to have for the blatantly wicked who do not profess Christianity, but rather are viciously and violently against Christianity and the God of Christianity, as well as the organized church. While David, a great type of Christ, and Christ himself over Jerusalem, was weeping for those professing godliness, and yet have apostatized and have turned wicked, asking them to repent, sorrowing that they are not repenting. God is not sorrowful. Mind you, God is not sorrowful when he destroyed and was not sorrowful and will never be sorrowful when he destroys the blatantly wicked. He was not sorrowful when he destroyed those in the flood. We don't read of any sorrowing that God destroyed all those in Noah's day. We do not see anything written about God sorrowing over those in Sodom and Gomorrah nor do we see him sorrowing over the destruction of Pharaoh. In fact, he had created Pharaoh, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, he created Pharaoh for that one purpose, to destroy him and his wicked army. He was not sorrowing over him. So there's a distinction being made. And so there's that distinction between those who hold some form of profession of Christianity and those who are violently against Christianity. And so for those of the pagan world who continue to hunt down the people of God to kill them either physically or economically or psychologically or morally so as to destroy their witness, then we are not to be sorrowful over their destruction. In fact, according to the testimony of Scripture, we are to pray against them. Imprecatory psalms are due to the ones who are violently persecuting the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, do we pray that perhaps they would be converted? Well, sure. But if there's absolutely no way that we can even see a glimmer of hope and they continue to ratchet up their persecution on the church, we have to pray that God destroy them. A hard doctrine, but a doctrine of Scripture. We must be sensitive to becoming overwhelmed with pride even when we pray against those wicked Because if not for the grace of God, we would be those wicked. Solomon gives this advice. He says in Proverbs 24, 17 and 18, he says this, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Secondly, in addition to David and his armies weeping, they also fast for Saul, Jonathan, and for Saul's entire army that was slain by the wicked Philistines. And they mourned and wept, verse 12, 
and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. The whole nation now is now to be grieving that the king is dead because they were fallen by the sword of the enemies. Even though Saul's death was God's righteous payment and David even knew that. He said perhaps God is going to take him in battle and that's what God did. So even though Saul's death was God's righteous payment for all of his evil deeds, it was a sorrowful and tragic situation. This was not a happy occasion. After the initial sorrowing had ceased, David resumes questioning the messenger. And David said unto the young man that told him, Where are you from? Whence thou? Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. Where are you from? Who are you? Now David knew where this man was from initially because he asked him. Now he asks him again that he was in Amalekite. In fact, he was kindred to the tribe that David had just defeated. Remember, David was now in battle with the Amalekites and destroyed them all. And now we have an Amalekite coming to David saying, I just killed the king. Now by further questioning this man, David seeks more information as to why he would take it upon himself to kill Saul. Why in the world would you take it, you Amalekite, take it upon yourself to kill Saul who was the Lord's anointed when I, David, himself, David himself refused to do such a thing. It was dreadful that he would kill the king of Israel. Note the rephrasing of this man's answer as to where he is from when he's further questioned. He adds that he is the son of a stranger. In verse 13, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. Now this phrase seems to indicate that this man had lived as an alien resident which told David that he has lived long enough within the area to understand his values, traditions, and customs. This means that this Amalekite knew all too well that Saul was the king of Israel. He knew that Saul was God's anointed and his position as king of Israel was a sacred post ordained by God. He might have even heard the rumor or the fact of the matter that David had opportunity to kill Saul twice and yet did not but rather rebuked him. He knew that David would not even put his hand to his own king, even though the king was David's enemy. And the statement that this Amalekite makes that he would even put forth his hand to the king seals the doom to this Amalekite. In other words, he should have known better to stretch forth his hand to kill the king of Israel. Now, while David leveled harsh rebuke against Saul, he never sought to kill him. He trusted that God would deal with Saul. He was leaving it to God. Even though David knew that he would be king, he was told by Samuel that he would be king, he didn't hasten his ordination by killing Saul. He didn't want to be delivered by his own hand of vengeance against Saul. He waited on God. So what he's thinking, I'm sure, in his mind is, how dare this uncircumcised Amalekite pagan would dare to put forth his hand to kill the Lord's anointed? We think about that. David, righteous David, how dare a a wicked man would seek to, to kill the witness of God through even wicked Saul? Well, to put it another way, how dare pagan rulers seek to silence the declaration of God's truth by sanctioning the church of Jesus Christ or intimidating her, seeking to close her doors when those in need are desperate to hear the truth of God? How dare they they stretch forth their hand against the Lord's anointed, the congregation of Christ, the ecclesia of the Lord? 
So why would this man, why would this man lie? We know he didn't kill Saul. Why would he lie? Why would he tell David that he did this mercy killing? Why didn't he simply tell David the truth if he even knew the truth? Now, as a man who was familiar with the history of the area and the rumblings of the contention between Saul and David, perhaps he thought if he could claim to have killed David's adversary, you see, he didn't understand the, the dynamics between Saul and David. The only thing he knew, the only thing he knew was that there was an adversarial relationship between David and Saul, and Saul was hunting him. Now, of course, he thought that, well, if David really hated Saul and was afraid of Saul, if I kill Saul, I will be commended. Perhaps I will be even awarded for ridding David of Saul and as an Amalekite, I'll be spared because I just heard the rumblings that David just killed all of the army of the Amalekites and I'm I'm an Amalekite. So I'm going to have to craft a story so I'm not killed along with them. However, his plan backfired and it sealed his doom. So, You see, what the Amalekite wasn't prepared for was David's reverence for what God had done by anointing Saul. He didn't understand David. He didn't understand a godly man. He thought David was much like himself. And David said unto him, verse 14, and you think about how he's saying this, probably just enraged. How was thou not afraid Have you no fear of God? Have you no fear of the king? How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand against the Lord's anointed, to destroy Yahweh's anointed king? This man was unafraid to put forth his hand to kill Saul, which told David that he had no regard for the workings of God. There was no fear of God before the eyes of this Amalekite. And so David passes swift judgment upon him, even the death of this young man. David called one of his, his other young men, one of the men of the tribe of David, and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. Something that David, even David, the king, the rightful king, the legitimate king, failed to do, would not do. It never even crossed his mind. Now to our modern mind, this sentence, capital sentence of death, passed upon this man may seem harsh, especially since the Amalekite didn't actually kill Saul. He was just lying. But that was beside the point. It was the fact that the man was so presumptuous to think that killing God's man was to be honored, showing that there was no fear of God in the heart of this man and no respect for God's anointing. You see, that is the position of the pagan. They have no fear of God. They have no regard for the church of Jesus Christ. They don't care about the truth. But that was the point. The man was so presumptuous without the fear of God that thinking that if he silenced God's truth, then he would be honored. Those who do not fear God are under the wrath of God. And David would later write, when he penned his own psalm, that the transgression of the wicked is the lack of godly fear. Notice what he says, Psalm 36 and verse 1. The transgression of the wicked saith within his heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. The great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in his classic work, Gospel Fear, sets forth these principles. Burroughs uses Isaiah 66.2 
as his text, which states, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. You read the word of God, and it's, it's, it just causes you to shake for its majesty and for its glory, for its wrath, for its mercy. To this man will I look. Burroughs says this, Scripture not only teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but that the individual that fears the Lord is the one God looks upon favorably. Those that fear the Lord reverences who God is and what He has to say. And so, it is the Word of God that is to be listened to with a trembling heart of honor, reverence, and humility. Honor, reverence, and humility. But this Amalekite had no fear of God. Now he had to know that in the past David refused to kill Saul, even when he had the opportunity to do so. He may even have suspected that David refused to kill Saul out of reverence to Saul's office and the commandment of God. And yet, this Amalekite, having no fear of God before his eyes, no regard or honor to God's word, he killed Saul anyway, and he boasted upon it. The lesson is for us today. And so the question is this. To what degree do we fear and reverence God? Whenever the word of God is preached, whether it's from the pulpit or from wherever, or the reading of God's word, it is to be honored and reverenced. But we must ask the question, when the word of God is preached, do we honor and reverence and fear the word being read or preached as we ought? Or do we daydream while while the lion of the tribe of, of Judah is roaring out his law? You remember how God is speaking of himself as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when the lion of the jungle roars, even the kings of the earth are silenced. So what are we doing while the word of God is paraded before us on the Lord's day? Or any day for that matter. But most importantly, on the Lord's day. What are our children doing when sitting in the pews? What are we doing on our phone? Are we looking at the scriptures or are we going on Facebook to see what people are saying? We're playing a video game. Could you imagine? Well, we have a small church here, so I can pretty much see if you're playing a video game. Or maybe I can't. What are we doing when the Word of God is being preached? How are we dealing with our children? Are we entertaining them instead of training them to reverence God's Word? When the lion of the tribe of Judah roars, could you imagine? Stand your child before a roaring lion at the zoo and see the trembling and the wetting of their diapers because of the majesty of that animal. That's how we are to approach the word of God being preached. Burroughs says that those that truly fear the Lord listen intently whenever the word is preached. Furthermore, those that truly hear God's word, if you are truly hearing God's word with a, with a mind to obey, you're not arguing with God's word. Well, no, wait a minute, pastor. You said God said this, but you know, I, I have a different take on that. Thus saith the Lord. You see, when we hear the word of God, we are to humbly bow before the word of God because it's the word of God, the creator, the redeemer, the king of the universe. Those that fear the Lord in his holy law word pay careful attention They pay careful attention to it so that they might hear both the warnings and the comforting promises that the Word of God has to offer. Those that fear the Word 
see God in the word. The Amalekite had little, if any, understanding of God, his law, his majesty, and his glory. And as a result, he was quick to take the life of Saul, or any life for that matter, and then take credit for the killing of God's anointed. Burroughs explains that the heart that esteems God and his word highly is the heart that has a reverence and an apprehension of it, whereas at one point before the conversion, it held the word of God lightly. It esteemed it lightly. Notice what he says. Such a heart which fears the Lord has high and honorable and reverent thoughts of God. His word, howsoever before it, it was lightly esteemed. The word of God was no other than other words are, but was as wind that passes away. But now, the soul comes to a very high and honorable and reverent thoughts of the word of God, reverent apprehensions of it, looks upon it with other manners of solemn thoughts than ever it had before. Oh, now I see it to be indeed, he writes, my very life. The word of God becomes your very life. It's what you hold on to in the storms of life itself. And when you walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, you fear no evil because you have the fear of God. You understand the word of God. Moses told Israel in his final letter, in his last will and testament in Deuteronomy 32, that before they entered into the promised land, that they were to set their hearts to hear the word of God with all diligence. Notice how he adds, with all diligence. It's an active appreciation of the Word of God, and a drinking in of the Word of God. Notice what he says, Deuteronomy 32, 46 and following. And he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do. Notice the obligation of fathers and mothers to impress upon the child the fear of God, the reverence of God. He continues, which ye shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land whither ye go over Jordan to possess it. Notice that Moses said that the hearing of the word of God and the severity of hearing the word of God, the seriousness that you might attend upon it, it's actually your own life. It's as important as your own life. And so I ask, how do you hear the word of God? How do you hear the word of God? Or perhaps, should I ask, do you, do you really hear the word of God? You know, it's interesting. A lot of people go into the sanctuary of the Lord's house on the Lord's day, and they let the pastor just give them the word of God, but they're not receiving it. Think of it this way. Think of the preacher as the pitcher on a baseball team. And think of yourself as the catcher. And think about how the relationship between the pitcher and the catcher is in the baseball. The catcher is so involved, ready to hear, ready to listen, ready to catch every pitch, no matter whether it's a fastball, a curveball, a knuckleball, a slider, it doesn't really matter. He's there. He's ready. He wants to hear that word. He wants to catch that ball. Think of yourself as the, as the catcher. So how do you hear the word of God? Does it actually enter into your thoughts to the point of carefully contemplating how it should be applied? 
What is our attitude when entering into the place where God is? Because this is where God is. I know it's just cement walls. It's just a rug and some wooden pews. But this is where God is. Where two or three are gathered together, there he is in the midst. What have you impressed upon your children as to the severity of listening to the word of God? What is the worship of God to you? What is the preached word to you? And how are you handling the word of God preached in your hearing whenever it is declared, but especially when it's declared publicly from the pulpit on the Lord's day in the Lord's house? These are questions we have to ask ourselves. If we're going to diligently be that Christian that Moses wants us to be, we have to ask these questions. We cannot, we must not, we shall not have a lukewarm, lackadaisical attitude to the word preached or the hearing of that word. And don't ever think that the word expounded by the preacher doesn't affect him as well. In fact, I can tell you this for a fact. It affects the preacher twice. First, when he's writing it, when he's putting it down on paper. Second, when he's declaring it to you. And in my case, when I'm editing it for sermon audio for the third time. And I could tell you for a certainty that sometimes I hear the things that I say that come out of my mouth. And I'm like, I need to remember that. Because the word of God must affect us. And this is how we examine the state of our soul and the future of our everlasting rest or the damnation that awaits us. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus warns this in Luke 8, 18. Take heed therefore, notice what he says, take heed how you hear. In other words, not lackadaisically, not half-heartedly, but diligently. He's not saying be careful what you hear. Be careful, take heed, be warned, therefore how you hear, for whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. So whenever we enter into the house of the Lord, we have to be mindful that those things that we are about to hear are precious, and that we have been privileged beyond belief, beyond all of those who lived during the Old Testament period. They did not have what we have. And Jesus tells us this much in Matthew thirteen seventeen. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. How much more are we to fear God and reverence His holy word? This should result in giving our utmost attention to the exposition of God's word, the holy word of God, the inspired word of God. The Reverend Roger Nicole admonishes, he says, the concept of reverence has nearly passed out of existence in our day. Propriety is a thing of the past. Decorum is an antiquated idea. It is bad enough that this is true of human institutions, but it is far more heinous, heinous crime when this is also true of the Christian church. The reason we are so irreverent toward holy things is because we are so cavalier about God and His holiness. Were we to have Isaiah's vision of the holiness of God, we would be changed indeed. But until we have the image of God that Isaiah did, we will be guilty of the reproach given by God to the wicked in Psalm 50, verse 21, where God says, You thought that I was just like you. What the church needs today, he writes, is a strong dose of gospel fear. So how, how do we do that? How, how do we manifest that? How do we practice that? How does one disciple oneself to hear the word of God with attentiveness 
and holy reverence, without distraction. Well, first, only those that are truly born of the Spirit have that desire to disciple themselves, to discipline the old Adam, to beat down that old Adamic nature so that it be subjected to a right reverence of God and His Word. And those who are able to do that by the grace of God are the blessed ones. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ says, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And where do you find righteousness? In the written word. This thirsting, this hungering, comes as a result of God's intervention. But even with that Holy Spirit's indwelling, the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And we are often distracted from holy hearing. So what are some helps? What are some of the helps in the discipline of attending on the Word of God? Now, the greatest manual on biblical counseling to hear the Word of God with diligence, the greatest manual ever produced is the practical works of the Puritan Richard Baxter. In his work, A Christian Directory, which is about 12, 13, 1400 pages with very small typeface, he explores every possible aspect of the Christian life. In chapter 19 of his work, he gives a list of detailed directives, an exhaustive, may I say, list of detailed directives of how to prepare to hear the Word of God preached, how to actually concentrate on the Word of God while it is being preached, helps in understanding the Word after it is preached, and how to remember what was preached and how to be affected by what was preached. These are men of great faith, They had no iPhones. They had no internet. They had no television. They had no electric. They were able to focus without distraction. And the following are some of his directives. I give you this, brethren, brothers and sisters, in 16 directives. Hear thee well. Number one, he says this. Come not here with a careless heart. Do not come to hear the word of God with a careless heart as if you were to hear a matter that little concerned you, but rather come with a sense of unspeakable weight, necessity and consequence of the holy word which you are to hear. Secondly, suffer not vain thoughts or drowsy negligence to hinder your attention. If you mark not what is taught to you, How should you understand and learn? Set yourself to it as for your lives. Be as earnest and diligent in attending and learning as you would have the preacher be in teaching. Number three, meditate on what you hear when you come home till you better understand it. I would encourage you to take notes. You can listen to the sermon during the week after it's up on sermon audio. Number four, Inquire where you doubt from those that can resolve and teach you. Ask questions. If you don't understand what the preacher just said, ask questions. It shows a careless mind and a contempt of the Word of God in most people and servants that never come to ask for the resolution of some doubts that they might have. Even though they have pastors, he says, that have the ability and leisure and willingness to help them, they don't ask. So what does that tell you about them? Number five, pray. Pray earnestly for wisdom and the illumination of the Spirit. Number six. I mean, how many of us pray in the morning before we come to church with our children? 
Lord, help us to not be distracted. Lord, help us to hear with open ears. Help us to hear with loving words, to be admonished. How often are we beginning our Lord's Day or evening before the Lord's Day asking God to open our ears? Is it just by osmosis that we hear the Word of God or is it by an intervention of God the Holy Spirit? And pray that the minister be precise and clear and that he be not distracted. Because this is a weighty matter that must be carefully dispensed because it is for your life. Number six, he says, it is a great help to memory to call over and repeat to yourselves the principles or lessons that have been spoken of. Seven, grasp not at more than you are able to hold lest thereby you lose all of it. In other words, if you can grab one little thing, just one, one kernel, one little little lesson. Better to grab it than to, to, to try to get it all and lose it all. If there be more particulars than you can possibly remember, lay hold on some which most concern you and let the rest go. You can say, you know what, that, that thing that you said, Pastor, that really stuck with me. That, that, really, that, that was, if you could have said nothing else, that would have been great for me. Another may remember more than you. All is not lost when words are forgotten, for it may breed a habit of understanding and promoting resolution, affection, and practice. If someone's taking notes and you didn't hear something or wanted to seek that person taking notes. Number eight, writing. There it is, the taking of the notes. Writing is an easy help for memory to those that can use it. Number nine, pursue what you remember and write it down when you come home. Fix it speedily before it is lost and hear others that can repeat it better. Pray over it and confer of it with others. Number ten, if you forget the very words, then just remember the main drift of all. Get those resolutions and affections which they drive at. Number eleven, live under the most convincing, lively, and serious preacher that you possibly can. It is a matter of great concern unto all, but especially to dull and senseless hearers. Number 12. Remember that ministers are the messengers of Christ and come to you on his business and in his name. Hear them, therefore, as his officers and as men that have more to do with God himself than with the speaker. Number 13. Remember that this God is instructing you and warning you and treating you about no less than the saving of your souls. Come therefore to hear as for your salvation. Can the heart be dull that we consider us that it is heaven and hell that is the matter that God is treating with him about? God is talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about righteousness and unrighteousness. He's talking about liberty and bondage. Number 14. Remember that you have a little time to hear. You think, let's all think about that for just a minute. Some of us have more time than others. Some of us have a whole lot less. Fewer hours in the day, fewer hours in the week, fewer weeks in the year. The Puritan says this, Remember that you have but a little time to hear, and you know not whether ever you shall hear again. Hear therefore as if it was your last. Think when you hear the call of God and the offer of grace, I know not, but this may be my last. How do we know we're going to be here next Sunday? We don't know. You don't know. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. You don't know. Hear as if it would be your last time that you are able to hear. How would you then hear, he says, if it was sure that you would die tomorrow? You'd be attentive. 
But you see, presumptuously, we think, oh, we've got years to go. Number 15. Remember that all these days and sermons must be reviewed and you must answer for all that you have heard, whether you heard it with love or with unwillingness and weariness, with diligence, attention, or with carelessness. He says, the word which you hear shall judge you on that day. Hear, therefore, as those that are going to judgment to give an account of their hearing and obeying. And finally, number 16, chew the cud and call up all of what you've heard and when you come home in secret and by meditation, preach it over and over and over to yourselves. Finally, Baxter admonishes his hearers to practice what they have heard. He says this, Without the practice of what you hear, all the rest is vain or counterfeit. Therefore, be acquainted with the failings of your hearts and lives and come on purpose. Notice, Notice how he he puts this. And come to church on purpose. Not just because it's Sunday and i got to get up in the morning, got to get the kids ready, got to do these things and the other thing. It's raining, it's not raining, it's hot, it's cold, whatever. Come with purpose. Make it, in other words, your purpose to get directions from the preached word and get help against those particular failings. And so while this young Amalekite might have heard all that was taking place in Israel between Saul and David. He failed to hear what the Lord had commanded concerning his anointed. And it was that failure that cost him his life. Next, David takes up a heart-wrenching lamentation for King Saul and his beloved friend Jonathan. We shall examine that next when we return to our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.